During the past month, I was dealing with some sickness, as I'm sure many of you, I know some of you have, the, whatever was going around, the bug. Um, and when I have the cold, I don't know about you, but I try to fight it as long as I can, but there's usually at least one day where I just have to surrender. Like as much, as, as much medicine as I take, I cannot go into work or whatever it is. There's just one day um, that it's the worst. And so I have a routine. Um, I post up on my couch. I get my blanket, I get my fluids, I get my medicine. I'm not leaving that couch for pretty much the whole day. And I have, this is the bad part, I have like three screens going on at one time. I have the, t the TV, which is gonna be like my, my show that I'm binging for that day. I get to invest in that show. I have my iPad, which probably has some sports on it. Gotta keep up with whatever you know sports I'm watching. And then sometimes if I have like a sports game that I didn't get to watch, I'll watch it on my phone. So I have like three, Becky will walk in and just shake her head because I'm sitting there on the couch, comfortable but sick. I'm all doing this while I'm sick. And I got my three screens going, just very, just trying to make it through the day. It's a rough life. Um, maybe some of you can, you guys can judge me, that's fine. Three screens, it's a lot, whatever. But I, during that time, I was watching a YouTube video and in that suggested video section, which I usually ignore, there was a video that caught my eye and it was about two people uh, who had the same profession but decades apart. And this video, this whole channel makes these videos that compare people in that, people who have a profession, but they've served in different generations. So this one was two war veterans. Uh, one, a modern day war veteran who spent the past decade in the military. And then uh, the person sitting across from him was a World War II veteran. And they just had a table in front of them with some, some questions and they would pick up the card and ask, quest ask the question and they would both answer it. And it was just really interesting to see the comparisons of their answers. Um, there were questions like, you know, how was your time in the service? Uh, what regrets, if any, do you have? Uh, how were you viewed by the world when you came home? What was the toughest thing about serving? Um, and sometimes there were similarities in their answers, and sometimes there were differences. Um, and it was just a very unique conversation. Um, and even though, uh, you know, they, they've fought in battles decades apart, it was a very different kind of war, they still had that shared experience to draw from that they could relate to each other unlike any other two people could in the world. Um, and so that got me thinking, this train of thought, uh, tied with something that Dr. Nystrom said in his series a couple weeks ago, and he said this in um, some of his lectures that I've taken um, about people from the early church. And he is uh, as you, if you've been here for any of his sermons, just a depth of knowledge of historical information and biblical data, and so he can paint a really good picture of what it would be like to be a Christian in the early in the early church. He'll give you all that. He'll he'll make it seem like you were there. And I thought it would be really cool to sit across the table from someone from the early church and just be able to answer some questions. What that would be like? Um, questions like. Uh, you know, what, what was, how did you first come to know God? Uh, what's the hardest thing about being a Christian in your life? Uh, what does it look like to be a part of a church? And I think there would be some similarities, and, but there would also be a lot of differences in how we answer those questions. Um, back then, I, I want to touch briefly on just, you know, what church was like, maybe for this person that would be sitting across from me at this table, uh, and I think one thing that I'd be really interested to ask them would be to uh, the comparison of what does the church do? What is the Christian's influence in the world? What does that look like? 
And there'll be one I'd be particularly interested in, uh, one dif difference that sticks out to me is the presence of Christian organizations in our world today than back then. In the early church, it was the church. That was the main and pretty much only Christian influence in that world. And for hundreds of years, it was the church that was showing the love of Christ through things like charity work, caring for widows and orphans, uh, the church that built hospitals and took care of the sick. It was the church that was the leader of education. And not all the church did was good, however. I, um, they were also at the center of political power and influence, and that didn't go well. Uh, things like the Crusades have left a dark stain on the church's history. But um, we come to today's world, and things have changed. And the answer that I would give would be different. The church is still involved, but it's no longer the leader or the center of education or hospitals or charity. Uh, whereas in the past, that was the church. That was the Christian's doing. Now Christians have permeated through in many different ways throughout society. That were, Christians are still working in hospitals and schools and charity work, but they're not all for Christian organizations, if that makes sense, if you follow me. And all I have to say is that uh, today's cult, Christian culture differs from that of the New Testament. And when looking at Christianity throughout history, the church stood out and was known for their action, for their doing. The church of believers... Uh, had an effect on the world around them. Mostly good. But the point is that the church was noticed. And um, something that comes to mind as an example is that, uh, again, this is another Nystrom story they told in class, that a Roman leader went out to a city away from Rome, and he was reporting back, and they have these letters today, and in his letters he's, saying, he's writing to the emperor the Christian influence and saying these Christians, this church, and here's what they do in this community, and it's really good. The people love it. Um, and he wrote in that letter that it's a threat to the Roman Empire. It's such a good thing that people love it so much that it could be threatening to the power that was there. And so I just say that, that um, Keep that in mind as we're contrasting uh, the early church and, and what the church looks like today. Um, I've been having this conversation a lot with people, too, of what, uh, how churches and Christian organizations are viewed. Is the church good at being the church today? What does that even look like now? And I don't mean compared to centuries ago. I mean even just 50 years ago or 25 years ago, was the church being good at being the church, I mean, even in our congregation here, we have many generations represented. And if we were to ask this question and sit across the table from each other, I'm sure there would be different aspects of church emphasized from different people. What does it mean to be a Christian organization? Meaning, uh, what are you doing? What are the differences with how you conduct yourselves compared to an organization in, in the same field that is secular? How does the world view Christian organizations and churches the conversations I've had are more focused about the pros and cons of being involved or around modern Christian organizations, including churches. And in these conversations, we've analyzed the approach and the application of biblical principles in the workplace and how they do whatever it is that they do. And in our conversations, who does it well, who's doing it right, the ones that have our respect are the ones that are like the early church, and they are the doers of God's word, ones that are putting truth, God's truth, into action. Just like the action and movement, the activity, and the influence that the early Christians were making, that's what's so impressive and inspiring. And so having 
dwelt on that for the past month or so, I was led to our passage this morning, James chapter 1. A bit of background on James, uh, and I got a lot of this information from the Bible Project videos that I know some of you are watching through your Bible reading plan. I would recommend this YouTube video. Spend a lot of time on YouTube. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. Is that you'll go home with videos to watch. Um, James. James is the half brother of Jesus. Uh, he. You can find out more about him in Acts chapter 12 and chapter 15, as well as Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, he is the leader of the Messianic Mother Church in Jerusalem. This is the first Christian community ever, and so he. Uh, he was the leader of it, and. It, when he was the leader, it was in hard times, not just because it's the first Christian community, and so it's the start, and there are a lot of difficulties with um, starting something new, but there was also famine in the land, and uh, they faced persecution from the Jewish leaders. And James was known as a, a leader, a peacemaker, a stalwart in that community, until he was eventually killed. And he lived a life modeling Christ for his church and for his community. This letter is a summary of James' sage wisdom for any community of believers. He's not really going to offer uh, new theological insights like Paul or Peter do in their letters, but rather he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. And I appreciate that, because that's more my pace. Deeper theological stuff. Wayne's coming back soon. More practical stuff. Every five to six weeks, I'll, I'll be here. But back to James. His influences uh, are derived from two main places in Scripture. Uh, he studied a lot of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and also uh, Proverbs, specifically chapters 1 through 9. So his book sounds a lot like those two passages in the Bible, Sermon on the Mount and Book of Proverbs. A lot of short wisdom speeches uh, full of metaphors and one-liners. And he calls the community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what his book, his letter, revolves around. In the letter, there are 12 main teachings about wholehearted devotion to Jesus. We're not going to cover those. Uh, but in his introduction, which is chapter 1, he touches on God's desire to restore, because humanity is fractured by sin, and God wants us to be whole. So I'm just going to break down chapter 1, uh, verse by verse, kind of what sections they are and what they preview in the rest of the book. So verses 2 through 4 are about life's trials and how they produce endurance and can make us perfect. Not the perfect uh, that you're thinking of, but more in the sense of wholeness. They can make us whole. Verses 5 through 8 are God's wisdom to those who ask in faith. We can either choose our own wisdom or we can choose God's. Verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 are how poverty uh, can force us to trust God. Wealth will pass away, but God is with us always. So you can kind of pick up, James is very, very Proverbs-esque here. And then 12 through 18, God is generous and gives us new birth through Jesus. And verses 19 through 27 are what we'll cover this morning. So let's read James 1. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 27. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles. If you haven't already, it will be on the screen. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness 
the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the awesome, incredible, sovereign ruler over all that you are, the creator of everything. And we come before you today eager to hear your word. I pray that um, through the words on the page and through the words that you've given me, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be drawn closer to you. We pray that your spirit would convict, um, convict us, Lord, and push us to be more and more like you. And we pray that in all these things and all that this church does and all that we do as, as followers of you, that you would be glorified. So we just give this time to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to go through this passage like I would a proverb or a um, passage from a teaching from Sermon on the Mount. There, there's not a lot to unpack. There's just the truth in its fullest uh, and its most distinct form. Again, which I appreciate. Um, so James isn't here to offer a lot of new theological information, but rather to challenge us to live a life that is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. So we want to frame this whole conversation like that. And let's look at the challenge that James lays before us and what it means to be hearers and doers of God's word. He's saying in 19 through 27, look, people who call yourselves Christians in a community of believers we still have to deal with our sin tendencies, where our flesh is naturally pulling us, the direction of self, of keeping ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. Naturally, and what I mean by naturally is without the influence of God, without the Spirit, we put ourselves first above God and before others. This is what we do. And that may look like being slow to listen to others, Another way of saying this is I think that sometimes we may not care what others have to say as much as we care about what we have to say. And I think it's interesting that James brings this out as when we think about a Christ transforming a life and making us new, we, we think about bigger things in our lives that have to change, but we don't always think about something like this as, hey, you should listen more. God wants you to be a listener. It also means that we can be angry. Our natural selves... Um, we can be prone to anger. We can view ourselves as more important than we really are. We start to put ourselves on a pedestal in life, looking down at everyone around us. And that's not at all what God intended. The only person that should ever be on a pedestal is God. And all of us should be equally looking up to him. So in our passage, James acknowledges where humanity, including believers, can really struggle. And these struggles can... They all come down to the problem of sin in our hearts, the sin that we are all born with. And that sin manifests itself in these ways, the theme being innate selfishness. 
So what is James' instruction? Again, very practical. He says, first, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now I hear this more and more today in today's world, probably because I'm on the guilty side of it, that there are fewer and fewer good listeners in the world. We all have conversations with people, and it is maybe few and far between where you have a really good listener on the other side listening to you talk. I remember being struck by this years ago at a family reunion, and I sat down with an aunt, and she asked a question about a summer from a couple years back. And next thing I knew, three hours had gone. And I, I was supposed to be doing dishes, and that's why I knew like I was felt like I should be somewhere else. But uh, she just asked one question, and kind of like probed a little bit here and there, and three hours had gone by to the point where at the end of our conversation, I was so struck with how good of a listener she was. I think I said something out loud of, you're a really good listener. And, which is a really weird thing to say in a conversation. Um, but it's, there's not a lot of us out there that are good listeners. And so uh, I thought it would be helpful just to touch briefly on what makes a good listener. Uh, and I'm not an expert. I say this as a novice. And I say these things I'm about to say more to myself than even to you. Just ask Becky. Don't ask her. Just trust me. If you did ask Becky, then it would be true. Good listeners show intentionality and genuine interest. So number one, good listeners show intentionality and genuine interest. It's easy to get caught up in a conversation where you say, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Um, it's just the usual. It's the niceties. I struggle with this a lot because um, I just get in the rhythm of how a conversation is supposed to go. And also my mind is usually on other things. So... Um, Take genuine interest and show intentionality, which may mean being okay with not doing what you were doing and taking time to pause and have a, co- a genuine conversation with someone who just needs to be listened to at that moment. A good listener also uh, means letting people speak, even if you do not want them to speak. Even when two words in, you're like, I really don't want to be a part of this conversation. Uh, you may want to correct or interject or argue or disagree or just change the subject altogether, but a good listener listens, and uh, despite what is being said, good listeners are quicker to listen than they are to say something, and they stay listening. And then a good listener, and I think this is what James is really hitting on, has a sincere, sincere care for others more than themselves, and this follows God's instruction for his people of love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Being a good listener is putting others before you, and like I said, he, he draws from Proverbs, so Maybe he was looking at Proverbs 4, 20 through 21, which says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Just the importance that the, the author of Proverbs would, would take time to write that it is so important to listen. It is an important skill to have. Um, and it's a skill that develops, especially when we listen to God's word. We should be in developing the habit of listening to in taking the truth, um, because it is, again, acknowledging the fact that someone else, God, knows better than we do. Okay. So listening needs to be something that we strive to do well. James also says, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, he's saying our natural tendency, our sin, our flesh, when we are sitting on the throne of our own hearts, can make us quick to anger, because we feel that we're at the center of things and therefore maybe we are wronged or there's some injustice that happened against us. Uh, We're offended. The world revolves around me. 
And if it's not going my way, then I get angry. Anger can lead to some sort of action uh, coming from a negative, sinful thoughts towards someone or something, and, and that's not good. I don't know the last time that you were angry, like really angry, and hopefully it wasn't recently. And I think it's okay to sometimes feel angry. We can't help but feel angry in some moments, but we cannot be consumed or controlled by that anger. We can't have, let anger have control over our thoughts and our actions. Anger, like I said, turns our hearts and thoughts completely inward. The world starts to revolve around us. And anything outside of us starts to not matter as much. And if our mandate is to love God and to love others, then anger really isn't part of that equation. Anger most often makes it harder to love God and to love others. If we were just to look, take a survey of all the characters in the Old Testament, in the first half of this, Anytime a person got angry, nine times out of ten, it did not end well. And I'm saying like the one time it was probably a righteous anger. The other times, someone sinned, someone got hurt, someone died because of the anger that someone felt. And I think we're supposed to conclude from that that we should leave anger to God because he's the one that can have a righteous anger and we really struggle with having that righteous anger. So James is emphasizing the problem that sin can cause in our lives and the need for an understanding and implementation of God's righteousness. But how do we know what God views as righteous? The implanted word, which is to be received, and just in case you haven't caught onto this theme yet, with meekness or humility, acknowledging that God's ways are higher. We do not know what's best. So we have a respect and reverence for the ultimate authority, God. This implanted word of God is so powerful that it can save our souls. That is the power of God on display. His words hold power, and power to address the sin in our lives, to transform our hearts and keep us close to him. In verses 22 through 25, James further develops this challenge for the Christian community. He says, those who follow Christ are not just to hear his word, not just to receive the truth, for that would be partial Christianity, but they are to do. Christians are to be doers of the word. And remember the word when James writes it here would be the Torah, found in the Old Testament. And the Torah is all about loving God and loving others as yourself. And so James is saying this has to happen. He's making it extremely practical and it's really good for us to sometimes be reminded of the practical. I won't even paraphrase it. His words are perfect enough. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word. Now, how could this be deceiving if we are hearers only? Well, if you claim to be a Christian, and yet your life shows no evidence, no fruit, nothing of God's transforming power and work in your life, then that will be noticed. People will notice that you say one thing, you adhere to one thing, and yet your life does another. It's talking the talk without walking the walk. And some subscribe to that as being a Christian, and they deceive themselves in that way. It would be a lie as to what Christianity is supposed to look like. We would be advertising a false gospel and cheapening the powerful, transforming work of God. Our faith would be incomplete. I think people can think, I go to church every Sunday, I listen to sermons, I read my Bible, I'm a Christian. That's 
That's what being a Christian means. And they could not be more mistaken. And it seems like it was an issue for the early church as well as James is addressing it. People wanting to be a part of the Christian community without doing anything Christ-like. I mean, that's in our name of what we call ourselves, right? Christian, being like Christ. And the Gospels that we study about Jesus' life are just accounts of what he has done, all the things that he did, the actions that he took while on earth. So in the early church, during James' time, was doing it right, they stood apart from the rest of society, from the rest of the religions of that time, because of what they did. Not just in their services, not just in their Sabbath gatherings, uh, the communion and prayer and worship that was different from other religious ceremonies, but even outside of that, in the community, to each other and for each other, the rest of humanity, there was evidence of their faith. While other gods demanded sacrifice, something only vertical, God instructed for care, love, and grace to be bestowed to others. People who are less fortunate, people who are sick, who are struggling to be looked after, those are the people that God wants on our hearts and our minds. That those who believe in him would love like him to other people. So let me ask all of you this morning, as I think James intended, are you only doing half of what God expects? Are you just listening and counting that as fulfilling the call of following Christ? Or are you both a hearer and a doer of God's word? I think it's also important to acknowledge that this is hard to do. And so I want just a couple of things that come to mind as to why it's so hard to put this into practice. One, as James, James says, it goes against our natural tendency. That sin nature within us, uh, we can very easily talk ourselves into thinking we have it figured out, that we know best, which usually very quickly means that life starts to revolve around us again, rather than other people, rather than God. Number two, it takes effort and energy, conscious thought and submission to God's will for our lives to put his truths into practice. And sometimes we're just lazy, we're tired, we don't want to do that. And number three, it's hard because the enemy is working against us. He does not want us to succeed. He does not want us to be putting God's truths into practice. But through the power of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we can overcome these challenges and be doers of God's word. The more I thought about this during the week, the more I thought that the church needs to be a source of love in the church, for the people within the church, and for people outside the church, because there are so many broken people in this world, broken lives, people who need to be touched with the love and truth of God. Um, Jim Jordan and I were just having a conversation before church last week, and we were talking about if, uh, even in this small circle of people, of our congregation, if you are just to peel back just one layer of everyone's life, we would so easily see the brokenness that we're all dealing with, and how it's so important that we love each other through that brokenness. And we haven't even touched about the people around this church in our community that don't know Christ, maybe, and how much of a need they have in their brokenness. And as James says in his book, that brokenness can only be addressed by God. He's the only one that can restore. Um, Becky and I have been going through some of our own challenges that have left us in the midst of brokenness and 
It's only through the love that God gives through his spirit and through his word and through the fellowship with all of you that we've been able to take steps forward and you know, make it from one day to the next. And I, having experienced that, I'm just so motivated and encouraged to be that for other people. This part of our lives that we're in right now is still challenging and full of unknowns, but this passage exhorts us to continue to relinquish control, to give our throne over to God, humbly submitting to the creator of all. And it goes against our natural tendency. It goes against our sin nature. It takes serious effort and thought to do that daily. And Satan really doesn't want us to succeed. But as we follow God, and as we put his truth into action in our lives day by day, it is so, so good. And it is that feeling of wholeness more and more. I want to go back to what I mentioned at the beginning of being a good church. To touch again on being a part of a Christian organization or church, uh, from this passage we see that it's clear that it's hypocritical to merely be hearers and not doers. It is deceptive and we fool ourselves and others. We could be deceiving ourselves and others what it means to be a Christian. So, a church who expositionally preaches the word of God week after week really well, but does little to implement that truth that they hear every week into their lives, into the public community, that would be incomplete and not sharing God's truth with anyone. Verses 26 through 27 share James' instruction not to be fooled into meaningless religion. And he shares an example of what it looks like to, be, to put God's words into action. And we could spend hours, if I got a whiteboard up here, just listing what would it look like to be um, doers of God's word. We can go with so many specifics. James chooses to visiting orphans and widows in their affliction as ways to be doers, presumably because of the glaring need for this in their community at the time. And this even harkens back to Israel in the Old Testament and how God instructed them to be a nation that cared for widows and orphans, unlike the other nations back then, to be a refuge for them. Remember James in his letters trying to emphasize what it looks like to love God and love others. Taking people who are suffering, who are dealing with some sort of difficulty, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual, and putting them before you. Addressing their brokenness. Bringing them to God. And it even goes back to the garden. It's about choosing God's wisdom over your own wisdom. Not putting yourself first. So I have five quick expectations from our passage. Number one, God expects us to be receiving his word. He expects us to be taking in his truth. We need to be hearers through the reading of his word, through listening to sermons and preaching, through prayer and meditation. He expects us to be intaking the truth. Number two, God expects us to be doers. He expects action. After receiving, then you go and put that into practice. The truth of God, his presence in our lives, uh, should, there should be evidence of that transformative power. Not just the moment of salvation in a person's life, but for the rest of their life. Number three, we can expect the enemy to attack. Some will fall short. Some will be deceived into believing that they are doing it all, but they're really not getting it. And this is, again, I just think of the garden and Satan. When you think of, whenever in the Bible you, you, hear, you see the word deceive, it should tie you back to what Satan did at the very beginning. And so we, can, we have these thoughts all the time, and I think it's Satan at work in our sin nature 
you know, do I really need to stop and talk with this person or help this person? Well, I, I have my own things to do. Maybe if I'm being responsible, I should get my stuff done first. And then if I have time, I can come back. And, and, and very quickly, that can just become that all of a sudden we've put ourselves first again. And Satan is counting that as a victory for him. It's not good. So expect that the enemy is going to attack. He wants us to fail. He does not want us to love God or to love others, but he wants us to serve ourselves. Number four, we can expect it to be difficult. We will want to do what the flesh, what our flesh wants us to do, what it's used to. It's our tendency. It's ingrained in us. We face an uphill battle. We will struggle with putting God's truth into practice. And number five, God expects that through us believers, through us believers, people will be loved. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And when we do this, we will be supplied with the strength from God to do this through his Holy Spirit. God doesn't expect this out of any sort of necessity from us. He doesn't, he's not dependent on us. And yet he chooses to use us to further his kingdom. And it's a joy to serve God in that way. And let me just end, those are my five things, let me just end by addressing us, East Parkway. I want to speak to our specific situation for those of you who call this church home. Let me ask this. Is East Parkway a church that is characterized not just by the hearing of God's word, but by the doing of God's word? Are we as a church, corporately, as a congregation, known for what we do if I'm honest, I'm not sure I would say yes completely, but I think we're on our way. I'm so encouraged with what God has been doing as of late and encouraged thinking about the things that, some of the things that we've always done. Things like uh, women's ministry and the, the way that God is moving and that Samantha has this vision that she, she wants the women in this church to do something. I love that. The Good Neighbor Team from this morning, Christine's putting this all together, reaching a refugee family by committing to them for six months and just being there for their physical and emotional needs is incredible. That fits perfectly with what James is saying. Something uh, that our church has done since I've been here for over 15 years now is singing out uh, the second Sunday of every month, uh, going to the Pine Creek Care Center for just a half hour and spending time with the people who can't make it to church. James would be so proud of us for doing that. And there are more, many more things individually that I know. I know most of you. I know that you are doing so many things of putting God's word into action. So I mean corporately, if, we were to, if someone were to ask this question of us, is that church known for what they do? I think we're on our way. And we should be encouraged. Um, but I just want us to also hold to the fact that I think we can still do more. Yes, we are a small church. Many of you serve in a plurality of ways. You're not just involved in one ministry or volunteer. You do many things. This whole church does, each and every one of you do many things, and it's amazing. But as a church, as a congregation, let's be more concerned with putting the truth of God's word into practice. Let's be known as doers in this community of God's word. Let's make sure that EPC is not a church that is deceived into thinking we are being Christians when we are actually lacking better implementation of God's truth. It's this idea that led to the change in our, our vision two years ago. We needed specific, tangible ways that our church could
could walk forward in God's truth. And so we came up with building community for the cause of Christ because that building, that is action, that is doing. It takes conscious effort. And we want to build a community in our belief in Christ. That's what we are about. That's what we're striving for. That's why we do everything that we do. And so we still need that. God is moving in us. He's been moving us in us from the start, but do not become complacent. Do not think that we're finally doing enough. Let's keep striving for more. Let's be a church of hearers and doers. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you again for reaching down and touching each and every one of us with your love and your grace. And I pray that even today as we hear your truth, that you would give us specifics in our individual lives and the people and uh, that we meet, that we are, that are in our lives, that you would encourage us and push us to put them first, um, just as you, is, you have instructed. And then even as a church, like we have been, we've been coming up with new ways to be active, to put uh, your words into motion, God. And I pray that you would continue to give us new ideas, spur, yeah, just spur the continued change in us that we would be a church known in this community for what we do for both being hearers and doers of your word. We want that to be true of us. We love you, God. We give you everything that we have. We pray this in your name. Amen.